Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back in the booth with me is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. Also returning to the City in the Clouds is Mr. Kevin Heffernan. Howdy there, folks. This week we're looking at Pavel Yurashek's Case for Rookie Hangman, very loosely based on the third part of Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. The film tells the tale of Lemuel Gulliver in the land of Balnabarbi. Tis a silly place, a surrealistic landscape where Lemuel has a hard time finding his footing, literally. He also visits the floating kingdom of Laputa, where things aren't so good either. Now, it's kind of tough to spoil things in a movie like this, so I will just say that we're going to be talking about all aspects of it, including the end. So just be warned, uh, if you don't want to know about the ending before we talk about it, then I guess turn this off. Try to track it down. A little tough to find these days unless you buy the actual Czech uh, DVD, which I believe has English subtitles. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, hopefully coming out eventually with English subs in the West sometime, maybe this year or next. So good luck with that. Kat and Kevin, I have to ask, was this a first time watch for the both of you or had either of you seen it before? Well, no, I'd seen it before because of the director's connection to Vera Hitolova and his part that he played right in the script for Daisy so I had seen it before but quite a while back it definitely doesn't get any easier to understand though I think with repeated watches this is the first time I'd seen it I'm a huge fan of Joseph Killian that was one of my first 
real falling in love with Czech films in the video era experience. And uh, like Cat, I was certainly uh, interested in him because of Daisy. So I'd been wanting to take a look at this for a while, and it it by far exceeded any expectations I had in terms of its uh, its visual beauty and its genuine weirdness. I, I think this is really, really one of the great sort of post-Prague Spring uh, Czech films, which I'm sure we'll be talking about later. This was a first-time watch for me. I'd had this DVD for a long time and kind of am using this as an excuse, as with most of the films in 2017, using episodes as an excuse to finally sit my butt down and watch a lot of things that I haven't seen before. So I had heard about this film. I had tracked it down forever ago, and I was really glad to finally be able to watch this and so excited that I actually even went back, knowing that it was based very loosely on Swift. I went back and finally read the original version of Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, and yeah, this is a very loose interpretation, but I'm very glad that I read Gulliver's Travels because I had only been familiar with the first part of it, slightly familiar with the second part of it, even a little bit familiar with the fourth part of it. But this third part, I just had no clue about. This is one of the more unusual aspects of Gulliver's Travels because the people that he meets aren't giant. They're not tiny. They're not savages like the yahoos or very noble horses like the women. And they are these very odd people. They look slightly different than us as far as the Laputians. They have these one eye that points up and one eye that's kind of crossed. But other than that, they seem very much like us. It's very interesting, the dichotomy, too, between the people who are on the floating island, the people who are down below. And this story kind of flips it that we spend a lot more time down below in Balnabarvi than we do in Laputa. So, and every time I say Laputa, I always think of uh, uh, Reputa the Buta from uh, the Jake Alsban song. Hey, Reputa! Reputa the Buta! Hey, Reputa the Buta! Let me down your hair, let me climb up to the ladder of your love, because it's a wolf of Goover saying to you. Like um, Gulliver, like the book, the third book of Gulliver, Gulliver gets overlooked. This kind of gets overlooked as part of the Czech New Wave, though, as well. It's one of those films people are like, oh, I've heard of it but haven't seen it. I don't know if that's just down to availability or what, or just because it doesn't get as much press. Well, and it's not that easy of a film to understand either. No. And yes. (laughs) In terms of a film that is difficult to understand, it's quite accessible. One of the great things about these digital readouts and VLC is you can sort of look at the little uh, time clock at the bottom and it has a pretty standard three-act structure. You know, it's about an hour and 42 minutes long, and there's a major plot twist about 26 minutes in, and then there's a midpoint, and then there's, a you know, the uh, the the last 24 minutes is, of course, where he finally gets to Laputa, and it builds to this climax. It does feel like an engaging film, even if we're trying to patch in uh, all of these recurring characters into some kind of linear thing that doesn't really congeal. It is. I mean, the structure's there. I think if you're used to Czech or Czechoslovak surrealism as well, 
I mean, most people will through Valerie's in a week of wonders. It's not really that much different because that's got characters who shift their purpose in the narrative yes. all the way through. So I think if you just leave logic at the door, it suddenly makes total sense. Or maybe that's just me and Kevin. <laughs> We're just on a or different, strange plane. The film is quite accessible in the sense that it has these dramatic beats. It's very well paced. The cinematography is stunning, so it has a great pictorial beauty to it. And it's not really alienating in a way that something like Dryers or Debt is, where you really get a sense that the filmmaker is trying to test the limits of our endurance it it really moves at quite a clip, and there are all these great little bits of you know, visual puns and 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 strange little non sequiturs and stuff. They keep it moving pretty briskly. I love the whimsy in it. That bit when he smashes the table with his nut. I mean, I think that all the little whimsical elements stop it from getting too bogged down. But it's right. so and- typical of that era, though. I think. Yeah, and that sense of social anxiety, the the extraordinary, the main character, Gulliver, has two things that he's trying to get out of, two basic dilemmas. One is this authoritarian place that he has found himself in, and the other is just the social norms that he doesn't understand and his own interior anxiety in all of these different social situations. If you have any kind of um, social anxiety disorder, I don't think this uh, film would be uh, high on your list of uh, you know best films ever. The opening of the film is sets us up. It's a mystery, and more than even being Jonathan Swift, it's more of a Lewis Carroll kind of a thing, where we have him losing control of his car. His car is going down this kind of corkscrew road with all of these switchbacks, and he eventually catches up to the car, tries to regain control. He goes through a tunnel, which is very telling, and he and he ends up the car crashes. He luckily is thrown to safety, but he finds that he's run over this hair, and the hair has a a pocket watch on it. It's fully dressed. It's got pants. It's got a vest on. So to me, you know, obviously it's very much a, a allusion to the White Rabbit. And that hair and the dressed up hairs are going to come back over and over throughout this. And the pocket watch as well will come through this. So we already know that time is a factor in this movie. But what what makes it not an easy film for me, the first time I watched it, I have to say the second time I watched it, much, much easier. But the first time I watched it, it really throws you off with this surrealistic opening where after he kills this hare he ends up visiting this house and he gives this voiceover where he keeps saying like and gentlemen i saw this gentlemen i did that so he's addressing somebody but we don't necessarily know who he's addressing and that this house ends up being kind of it's like a his childhood home he meets his childhood self he reenacts some of his childhood memories and the way that it's edited is absolutely 
gorgeous the way that he moves from one area to another and he's constantly jumping or falling down from these heights it's like it's again it's like going down the rabbit hole but it's inside of this house he's going from one area to another and he keeps falling or jumping down and there's one moment where he kind of falls onto a door and then we switch and he's actually going into a room so we've switched the the level of the planes and it is just one of the most powerhouse sequences that i've seen in a movie in a long time and it just keeps going for i'd say at least a solid what 10 minutes it feels like where he's something like that moving from room it's beautiful though it's really beautiful do you know it reminded me a little bit of the film that comes later on polish film the hourglass sanatorium which has is that dream world where he his memories and things from the past pop up kind of reminded me of that a little bit although stylistically slightly different but that kind of thing where his past is coming back to haunt him and all these memories are kind of trapped in this little building which is amazing i like the bit when he falls on the floorboards and they all start to dip in it's so good and then we see the drowned people yeah and he sees the drowned girlfriend who i don't know if that's like a hamlet reference or something but it's like you know this woman marqueda and the way that he prefers to think of her as being drowned which i always love that he likes to think of her being dead it's just a little easier for him yes and then that comes back at the end when they have that final confrontation and and she says you do know what a real drowned person looks like don't you i think that theme comes up in a lot of not well a lot of his films he didn't do that many films though but this idea of idealizing people or things do you not think? I mean, I know, Kevin, you said Joseph Killian. That's the same thing. He's looking for this guy called Joseph Killian. And it's like this um, idealization of a person or a personality. And he does that with this girl, uh, Marquetta, all the way through the film. And even his works, he worked on Vera Kitalova's Strop, her first film, mm-hmm. which is kind of about the idealization of femininity and women and beauty. So I found that an interesting connection because then you've also got these people that idealize this so-called government in the sky. I'm probably running way ahead now, but I thought because you mentioned the girlfriend, now's the time to mention it. I can totally see that as far as this uh, idealization and wanting things to be different than they really were. And just even his strange memories as he's going through the house, there's one part where he talks about how he suddenly realized that he hadn't seen St. Bernard's in 25 years, and then he comes to the realization that they had died out. And it's like, what? (laughs) (laughs) It's sad, though. It is very sad. It's really sad, and I think that stays, even with the whimsical stuff, kind of stays stays throughout the film. It It has got that kind of tinge of sadness in amongst all the absurdity. But then right after that, he walks into another room and says... Now, here's a place I think I can finally quit smoking in. Yeah. And, and these, this is St. Bernard and the smoking, and then the, and this certainly doesn't look like the hallway of an elementary school, and all that stuff comes in just rapid succession. So even these little gestures of uh, sort of longing or sentimentality, they're just kind of steamrollered, you know, fairly soon upon, uh, you know, by more of this sort of crazy surrealist stuff. 
the editing style is just so wonderful. I mean, we talked about the way that he falls into the door and it actually opens into another room. I mean, even after we get through this sequence, there are moments where he will just see a character and then next thing you know, he's like having coffee with that character. Just we cut to the interior of a place where they're suddenly together. And it's just this... It, it just moves by its own logic, which is a really nice way that this happens. But again being unprepared for how this film is going to work, you're going to kind of be thrown off. At least I was thrown off the first time I watched it. Watching it the second time, much easier to kind of get into the rhythm of what's going to happen with this movie. Well, the space is uh, very pleasurable. It's very plastic. It's what uh, Kuleshov called synthetic geography. And the film really understands how we can have a character look off screen or we can match on uh, a particular action from one shot to the next. And, and we seemingly have seamlessly moved from one physical space, you know, into this other. And the, the pattern that often, uh, the, the pattern that these sequences often take is that we have uh, one of these uh, clusters of, of sort of spatial meltdowns where it begins with, Gulliver in some kind of highly specific, recognizable everyday situation. And then as we move in through these, these crazy cuts that we see, the space often gets much more stylized and abstract to where by the time we're, we're sort of done with that sort of uh, knocking us from one space into another, we could be in a room where all we can see is, a door and the outlines of the light on a person standing in the doorway. So the space kind of dissolves in that, in that way, really remarkable uh, sort of uh, Gothic horror stuff in here too, which is really, really kind of interesting to me. Doors are so important in this movie. I mean, when it comes to, there's a sequence, you know, I keep mentioning the one door that he falls into slash through but there's one section where we see, what is it, like five or six doors on screen all at once. It's this great optical effect. And all the doors open and these people rush in and just start beating him and kicking him. And that's right after a sequence where he goes through one doorway, comes into this very dark room, and looks through another doorway and sees this woman standing there, this naked uh, brunette woman, uh, Mrs. Miller, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. And... It, that definitely seems to be like maybe his first sexual experience. And then he even sees his own self as a boy who's looking at a uh, kind of a gross uh, medical textbook, but there's a semi naked woman in there. So it's just like when you're a little boy and you're trying anything and everything to see pictures of boobs. And it's just like, <laughs> okay, you know, in that he sees this kind of maligned breast is just like, Oh, okay. And that, in, I, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but that his first sexual experience seems is with this brunette woman, and we're going to have this whole uh, juxtaposition of brunettes and blondes throughout this. Like we have the the blonde that we've already seen at this point through the wavy floor, uh, who is this Marquetta character or 
could be Marquetta, and Marquetta keeps coming back in various forms throughout the entire rest of the film. Kat, you mentioned uh, Valerie and her Week of Wonders and the way that like her father comes back in different forms through that. Yeah, well, the purple, the eagle, he changes his role, doesn't he, from brother to friend. You know, you're not quite sure who's who. The aunt then gets younger, so, you know, then she changes her role. And I think in Valerie... We just talked about that sort of jump cut. That kind of does that as well. One minute she's in one place and then another. And I think that definitely does like tie into the whole Czechoslovak tradition with surrealism. Um, and the Aragraf Sanatorium as well. You just mentioned the when he's seeing his first love or his first sexual experience puts me in mind of a very similar scene in that where he sees his first sexual experience with an older woman. So it's interesting. I think it sort of kind of gets, and it has got that whole satirical thing about it from that, from the Czech era where, you know, filmmakers were criticizing the communist regime. But I think the, the best thing about Case for a Rookie Hangman is there's so many other meanings you can put on it. And it's a very emotional film that isn't just about that because it's got all these other themes of longing and sentiment and, you know, wanting connection it's got that in it as well kevin you mentioned this whole idea of the social anxiety and not necessarily know what's going on that even plays into that just little sequence where he sees who he thinks is mr miller and says hello to him and the guy just punches him right in the face yes <laughs> it's awful. he has a hard time doesn't he and we get that kind of thing throughout this i mean eventually when we kind of break out of this house sequence which like i said takes a little while when he is introduced to the laputians the way that they all are silencing him which again we can talk about you know trying to uh, silence artists definitely but just the way that they are all uh signaling to him to be quiet and then we find out later that apparently nobody's supposed to say anything on mondays because everybody's yeah. talking the next day <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, when you met us, it was a Monday. Okay. <laughs> so these weird social norms that he I just love doesn't those understand. I rules they have him. What's it? Haven't they banished November as well because of flu epidemics? That's yes. So, <laughs> just so ridiculous. The whole movie does put you on edge that way because you don't know what the rules are. We're, we are Gulliver in this. We don't know what the rules are. And I really, you know, th- those kind of movies can be frustrating or really really gratifying and in this case i'm gratified by just how our hero and us we don't know what the rules are i just wanted to ask actually because kevin brought up the horror elements and if either of you've seen them and i'm probably going to mess this name up zibnik brinich's the fifth horseman is fear yes i have some notes on that film Right, I think right though here. these yeah. two, the, that whole that suspicion and the paranoia and the very claustrophobic scenes in this are very um, similar to that film. Oh well, this this film was shot by uh, Jan Kalis, who also shot a couple of other films that um, uh, that Juracek wrote the screenplay for. But uh, he also shot the Fifth, Fifth Horseman of Fear, and it has a lot of those sort of um, expressionistic moments of um, of paranoia and this idea of a, a hostile off-screen space. And I, I, I can definitely see 
uh, the visual connection and I think the tonal connection between the two films, definitely. That's a, that's a really, really great film. I love that film. That was scripted by or part scripted by Esther Krembachova, who co-wrote Daisies with uh, Pavel. That's fantastic. It's great that they all work together, I think, in this little pot. And they all came out of um, FAMU and, that you know, they all knew each other and worked together and appeared in each other's films. And you can just imagine the energy at that time, mm-hmm. working in that time, how exciting it was, but also how dangerous it was. Exactly. They all got in a lot of trouble between 1969 and 1972. That was some of them were able to make the transition into television, but this sort of film like this uh, was not long for uh, Czechoslovakia in 1970. And Mike, we talked about this when we discussed Valerie uh, a few months ago, is that it surprises me that so many of these very politically and culturally critical films were sort of grandfathered in, in some way that, that, after the Prague Spring ended in 1968 with Brezhnev's tanks rolling over the the border, these movies that were in pre-production, they just went ahead and let them make it. Maybe that has uh, more to do with uh, uh, the institutional aspects of an Eastern Bloc film industry. But I've always been astonished at how many of these very, very subversive films were actually slated to be made before the invasion and they seem to have wended their way through production and post-production and even release. So that's a really fascinating thing, but it really is true cat that we look at so many of these films and we see, uh, filmmakers and playwrights acting in their friends films and, people who would usually be a camera person writing the screenplay for another film. It really was a remarkably energetic time. Kevin, I don't know what you see in this film. I mean, obviously there's no criticism of any sort of political uh, system going on in this movie. I mean, right. This is just a simple tale about Gulliver from Gulliver's travels. There there can't be anything more to this. No other level of, of criticism here. In the same way that there was no other level to that lovely children's story, Gulliver's Travels, that we all heard as children. It's just, <laughs> what's the deal? He's, he, th- these, these cute little people tie him up and he shows them the error of their ways. He's a decent, civilized <laughs> English person and there's all this court intrigue. And when he leaves at the end, they, they sing a song, don't they? They sing a song <laughs> and wave goodbye. That was the, that was the, they, that was the cartoon version of Gulliver's Travels that I had as a kid. And then I got to high school and I read the book and they're sticking these like bellows up people's asses and, uh, <laughs> You know, trying to blow food out their mouths and all this other stuff. See if they can you know, uh, turn the ordure back into uh, into food. And I, I was just completely gobsmacked when I actually read the novel and realized how misanthropic and satirical it was. If Jonathan Swift and Kafka had a baby, I think that would be this film. If this does get a release, that has to be the tagline on the back, (laughs) because it's so true. 
this section with the bellows that you're talking about, that is the Balnabarbi section. And that one, just for folks for a little bit more historical context, when Swift wrote Gulliver's Travels, he wrote parts one, two, and four, and then kind of came back and wrote three, which is odd, I know. But And if you read it in order, when you come to part three, it really stands out as being very different from the other parts. Because like I said, he in the first part, he visits Lilliput. He has the the little people, and you know there are a lot of other things going on in this. It isn't just that simple cartoon story that we did see when we were kids. I especially like when there's a fire that happens at the palace, and he has to basically relieve himself in order to put out the fire, because otherwise the whole palace would have burned down. And that that puts him in Dutch with the queen uh, because he has sullied the castle. And there are all of these things of people trying to get rid of him and murder him. And uh, so it's not just banishment. They actually just want to murder this guy. They want to put poison in his food and kill this giant. And there are all of these political intrigues between uh, Lilliput and a, a nearby kingdom. And they are very very distinct because one group will open their hard-boiled eggs at the little end and the other group will open their hard-boiled eggs at the big end and the little (laughs) indians and the big indians they cannot see eye to eye when it comes to this so it is a major bone of contention between these two groups and then when you get to the next land where he uh, is the small person now amongst these giants. And that is just amazing, the political conversations that he has with the king and describing all of Europe. And that is some of the most cynical stuff. Not as cynical as the Whimimim part that comes later on, where he sees what nobility they are and that they don't even know what lying is. But God, all of the times where he is describing how the you know his world, which is basically our world, which is you know England and and the the Western civilization, when he's describing that, it is just the sarcasm is just dripping off the page. But Gulliver is so sincere when he describes things to people. But my God, when he describes what lawyers are like. Oh, Jesus, you have never read anything as acerbic <laughs> as that. Has anyone seen that Ted Danson version? I think it was made for TV. Oh, it's it's actually quite cynical and quite close to the text. I remember really enjoying it. I think it must have been in the 90s, early 2000s maybe. Um, it, it was a TV series, I'm sure, but they, it covered all of it, all the weird. I love the bit with the immortals in it oh the straw brothers yeah it's, it's it's actually quite good for ted danson no offense to ted danson but it is actually quite similar to the text quite subversive for a tv program i will have to check that out i was looking as i was reading it i was like okay i know the recent jack black version i remember the animated version from when i was a kid but when i was looking up what the yahoos are supposed to look like i came across a picture of ted danson and these yahoos and i was just like oh i forgot this uh, that this existed i remembered kind of like as i saw the picture i was like oh you know a special two-night television event or whatever 
so I really should go back and check that out. But all right, I'm glad to hear that they. Do I remember really enjoying it. I haven't. It's been a long time, but I I I totally forgot about it as well until we we were going to do this, and I thought, hang on, wasn't there a like a TV film version? And then it just reminded me. I remembered really enjoying it. Bit different to this one though. <laughs> yeah, ever so slightly. Well, the '60s was a time in which a lot of the Warsaw Pact countries were doing these fairly elaborate adaptations of the canon of Western literature. You know, this is, you know, Kazenziev starts doing his Shakespeare films in the Soviet Union in the in the mid 60s. And and Gulliver, of course, had been uh, shot in I think it's 1935, one of the first uh, stop motion animation films you know, done in the Soviet Union. And I think we can see that filmmakers often used these literary adaptations as cover for some of the stuff that they might not necessarily get away with in a more straightforward way. And what's fascinating to me about Rookie Hangman is we take the premise of Gulliver and we place it in this recognizable contemporary Czech world that is clearly in some kind of authoritarian or totalitarian government. And it's it's so specific that at one point, Patrick, the professor's son, is taking Gulliver around for a sort of historical and archaeological tour of the town and he's careful to take him to the side of a building where all of the capitalist advertisements haven't been completely erased you can sort of still see them you know in the stone and that's a pretty scabrous moment they're really drawing our attention to the fact that you know way that we live here in Czechoslovakia has not existed from time immemorial. And then there's the great bit at the party where the woman is uh, showing him the painting of Laputa and they're just beaming with pride about all of these absurd social customs and these, these strange uh, uh, mythological imagining of the origins of their society and stuff. And, if anything, the Gulliver pretext makes the social satire here even more contemporaneous and subversive than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, that he doesn't understand that Mondays we don't speak, that he goes to this party and everyone is doing their quote unquote national dance. And he's just like <laughs> in the middle, doesn't really understand what's going on. And then he goes over and grabs this woman to try to dance with her. And it becomes this big social blow up and she starts crying i mean this the movie puts me on edge when it comes to that kind of stuff because he just doesn't know and it's not like people are just forgiving him for not knowing the customs because then it you know he, he goes on uh goes before committees constantly being questioned about these things and there's this whole thing too where he has this watch that I mentioned earlier, and the watch is to Oscar the Hare, and it's from this prince. 
and we find out that there are all these political things going on with the prince. There's the the the, the prince of uh, Laputa, or there's the uh, yeah the princes of Laputa, and then there's the who is it the the chairman of Balnabarbi, and the prince is missing, and the chairman is actually what a uh, is it a gardener. Thank you. Yes. So it's just like, you know, uh, that he is embroiled in this turmoil and they keep saying, like, are you Oscar or are you not Oscar? (laughs) He really feel for him as well, because it's so ridiculous. He's like, but it's the hair. And they're just getting really, really angry with him Mm -hmm. all the time. Or they're laughing at him when he's there in front of all the students. Yeah, the student scene is great. (laughs) I've often fantasized about bringing in a guest speaker in one of my classes in a big amphitheater and, and ending up with the, uh, the, the guest speaker punching one of the students. It's the kind of thing. <laughs> I have not secured such a speaker yet, but I, I remain undeterred, but that's a really crazy sequence because it initially looks like it's some sort of tribunal and we later learn in one of those great sort of bits of synthetic geography, we don't know that we're in this amphitheater classroom and and that the people asking questions are in a class, a university class, high enrollment, by the way, where they're obviously being trained how to remorselessly and mercilessly interrogate someone, which suggests to me that, you know, uh, uh, interrogation is a popular major at Czech universities at in you know 1968 1969, which is once again a pretty harsh bit of social criticism. I think. Yeah, they have these two piles of evidence, one pro and one against, and he's going through this whole thing. I mean, I love just all the steps that they're going through of. Now, does this belong in the pro pile or the anti pile? Is it what is the exhibit number for it? It's just, yeah, it's fantastic. You will notice as we move from left to right on the table, the evidence appears to grow more exculpatory. But if you look at it uh, in a diagonal, you can see that, in fact, it it becomes uh, it becomes uh, worse looking for the defendant, really. And that sort of parsing of observable reality to this completely absurd, uh, you know, what we would call obsessive compulsive uh, extent is that's very Swiftian. You see a lot of bits in Gulliver's Travels, particularly uh, in the Laputa in the uh, the Laputa portion of the book, where he talks about these these scientists and and astrologers talking about. Uh, their empirical investigations into the world. And, and the more detailed these explanations become, the more fundamentally unmoored from logic they could ever be. And I think that that's, that's something that this film really, really does very well is, is to critique that idea of empiricism and investigation of the world leading to some kind of set of conclusions upon which we can base our behavior. And I think that's the ultimate surrealist aspect of of the film that not only is the film ununified in a sort of classic surrealist way but the actual dramatic business of the film the actual con these micro conflicts that gulliver engages in with all of these characters are themselves a critique of of rationality and empiricism 
If has anyone seen um, late August at the Hotel Ozone? No. Yeah, it was Schmidt, but Pavel Dracek, um actually did the screenplay, and that's kind of like the opposite. When you take all of Civilization away, it's a brilliant film, but it's really depressing. It's basically there's only one man left on Earth, and the rest of these kind of marauding primitive women who go around sort of killing and cannibalizing and you know they've become really primitive so that's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum when you've just taken and the and the i won't spoil the ending but the kind of punchline in that is just gutting that film but it's kind of the other opposite of the spectrum you've got in case for a rookie hangman you've got this intense kind of obsession with bureaucracy and rules and order and they're even kind of making this machine so that people won't have to think they've made this ridiculous thinking machine with a hand crank and everyone has become so passive and they just apply they just go along with this ridiculous system that is just so ridiculous if you look at hotel ozone that's kind of that's kind of like the opposite of that in that where all society's broken down you've just got anarchy and brutality it's an interesting contrast i think both are equally as cynical and depressing in that way although hotel ozone is entirely depressing it's got no whimsy it's got no silly little jokes it's just really bleak so it it tends toward the hungarian slash polish side of the eastern european spectrum yeah, I see some parallels with Case yeah. for Rookie Hangman in uh, Borovchek's uh, Island of Goto as well, which is an island which is as ordered and as ridiculous, and they've got this ridiculous president and some guy who collects flies. People get assigned these really nonsensical jobs, like they're really, really important. So it's got, and obviously that's a Polish film, so it has got that parallel as well with these systems. I don't think Borovchek was as satirical, cynical as a lot of the Czech filmmakers. He was more interested in fantasy. But there are some parallels with that as well, I think. Bond the Barbie in the book is fantastic. It's this whole, supposed to be this place of higher learning. There's this academy on the mainland and... Oh my God! Yeah, you mentioned the uh, the blowing of the bellows up the bottom, and there are just everyone. It, it, when he goes in visits, he is assigned to this person. I think is Lord uh, Manodi or something like that. It, it, the name comes back in this one. Uh, it's uh, Manodi, yes, and he is kind of a social pariah. Manodi is because he doesn't necessarily ascribe to everything that everyone else is doing and they are doing the proper way. And so they are ascribed to this higher learning and higher way of doing things, including uh, when Gulliver visits the Academy and he's going through all of these rooms and being introduced to all these different professors. There's one professor who in particular stands out to me because he's trying to extract sunshine from cucumbers there's yes. another one <laughs> like you do right there's another one who's trying to reconstitute food from shit so the, it's just <laughs> a, amazing stuff and everybody thinks that their work is so important but then when you contrast that to laputa which you would think oh it's this flying city it must be so great you know it's like 
you know, Bespin or something, but uh, they're not that much better off up there. They are only concerned with math and music. That's the only thing that they think about, so much so that they can't even hold a normal conversation. They have these people of lower caste who hold these uh, instruments that are basically long sticks with a pad on the end, and they'll whap people on the side of the head to help them speak because they will get so lost in thought that they won't even talk anymore. So they have these <laughs> these batters that are just whapping them on the side of the head in order to help them concentrate and be able to have a normal conversation. Otherwise, they just get lost in their own thoughts. And, of course, Gulliver, at one point, he gets whapped in the side of the head. He's like, no, 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 I'm fine. <laughs> I, can, <laughs> I can have a normal conversation. Thank you very much. But yeah, they're, they are so up their own asses when it comes to that. And then you have this whole thing of the Flying City can, if there's unrest in Belnabarbi, the Flying City can float over wherever there is unrest and just start chucking rocks off the side and start destroying parts of Belnabarbi when they have issues with them. Or they can, there's another way they can float the city over someplace, rob them of sunshine, basically blot out the sun. Or if things get really bad, they can just lower the city right down onto wherever the unrest is and crush everyone. So there's one city in Balnabarbi that has built these towers and they put these magnets up at the top of the towers to disrupt the uh, the floating because it's all done with magnets. Um, magnets, how do they work? It's all done with magnets. And... Uh, so they've managed to disrupt the Laputa flying system so they can't come over and, and, and throw rocks on their city or crush them. So it's, it's very interesting, this whole idea of like, of course, we can boil it down to the haves and have nots and this one center of uh, unrest. And I think, of course, when um, when Swift was writing this, I believe there was a lot of England versus Scotland or Ireland kind of things in, in yes. the It was book. always England versus someone, though, wasn't it, to be uh, fair? And, and Fran France also. In the good there. old days. <laughs> but in this one, we can talk about, you know, the the uh, the haves versus the have-not, the party versus the people, you know. So it's Swift opens himself up to so many things, so many interpretations. Well, one of the most imaginative reworkings of that motif in Swift about Laputa flying over a place and blotting out the sun as punishment, uh, Vilma has this great story that she tells Gulliver about there was no sun for 10 days, and this man had this the most beautiful voice. And I followed his voice everywhere, and it stirred longings in my soul. And then the sun came out, and I realized it wasn't one guy. It was just any guy's voice, and everybody looked the same, which is a little anecdote that you can't imagine Swift ever having as part of that, you know, that idea of the, the eclipse, right? But well, they kind of it kind of goes into that whole thing I was saying earlier, doesn't it? About idealizing something with her. Yes. She idealizes a voice and it becomes really romantic and seductive. Whereas the reality isn't that. And there's a lot of this between reality and fantasy in it of what he wants to see in, in Marquetta and the reality of that. I mean, he keeps going up to those girls and they're like, I'm not Marquetta. 
it's almost <laughs> like you know he just wants them to tell him what he wants to hear and no matter what he does he ends up in bed with dominica yeah i mean who is she <laughs> the first time that appeared it's like what the hell uh, and he's and he's really disturbed by it because uh, yes. you you don't really see how they get there. It's just kind of you get that all the way through. It goes along and then slap. Oh, he's in bed with someone else. And always Dominica, and always the brunette versus the blonde. And of course, the people in um, Bell and the Barbie idealize the people up in Laputa, right? So so the movie is sort of all about these characters that are projecting their own emotional needs onto a world that's not necessarily uh, going to accommodate them or see that through. Of course, uh, the character of the poet uh, is a wonderful example of that. I think Um, uh, that, that, you know, he's a person who periodically comes back in the film and seems to be on the verge of giving us some kind of, or at least to give Gulliver some kind of revelation about what it all means. Uh, and, and of course, uh, at the end, uh, he's the, the, the first character that is guillotined, and he can't even think of a declamation to make from the guillotine, which apparently that was like an entire literary genre in like the late 18th century in France that no one who went to the guillotine would ever dream of committing the social you know, faux pas of not having a declamation uh, to utter on that. And, and he has absolutely nothing to say. Uh, I would have, uh, had I been him, I would have repeated a great line of dialogue from about five minutes before he is guillotined. He says, give my sausage to the orphans and my beer to the widows. I think that would have been a good one. <laughs> I love the fact they're going to execute him as well for writing a poem about that hair. Because it it can't exist. So that's the reason they give for executing him. Right. But everything that motivates the plot of the movie is premised on the fact that these people are all obsessed with who the hair is and what happened. It's got a bit of it's got a bit of prisoner about it, don't you think? That TV show where they're all trying to find out who number one is. Well, and luckily it doesn't end like the prisoner ended. No. (laughs) (laughs) Or it kind of does so, because it doesn't really... Well, the people, not so much Gunnar, jumping ahead here, but they don't get what they want to hear. They don't get their resolution, which, you know, talk about in a bit more depth, but... I mean, we keep seeing this this, uh, computer that they're working on, this hand-crank computer... When they at the end they stage what is obviously going to be the big public debut of the computer with an opening act of the guillotining of subversives, they shoot all of those backstage scenes where you can't tell where the hand crank computer ends and the guillotine begins. They're sort of set next to each other. Is that they're kind of the same machine? It's really, really quite remarkable. Once again, another extraordinary manipulation of space to further disorient or to confuse or to draw parallels between different things. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier 
the thing about the gothic horror, and and I have to say, you know, it's a, this is a movie that begins with a guy driving on a country road. Something happens to his car. He goes into this alternate space that's almost always imagined as some kind of brooding mansion or something. There's some sort of shameful secret. There's some sort of enigma that he doesn't understand the role that he plays in it, but everyone is assuming that he's somehow central to this. We have uh, something, you know, rather close to reincarnation with this uh, perpetual return of these, these female character, you know, the female character. And then at the end, uh, after this sort of violent climax, he kind of drives off and then there's the one kind of angry guy in the middle of the road that he saw before he first, you know, took the detour and stuff. And then he drives off. I mean, that's a lot like um, uh, Lisa and the devil or the devil's nightmare. Just think about all those like Euro horror movies from like five years later. It, it, there's a, there's a real kind of horror film, text going on here and, and the way the uh, the architectural spaces are put together with the doors and the staircases and the um, this the low angle uh, wide angle uh, lens shots the sort of Wellsian shots with all the uh, the the ceilings with all the geometric shapes that it creates and stuff like that so you know maybe one of the reasons I didn't find uh, the movie quite as alienating even in its absence of a of a linear plot, is it, it really did feel in many many places like a horror film, um, and it actually reminded me a lot of of Orson Welles' The Trial from 1961, which seemed to me uh, uh, to be this melding of uh, of surrealism with with Kafka. So so I, I I really found it tremendously entertaining. What did you guys make of that extraordinary scene where there are a group of young interns of some kind being asked to pull off the shelf rolled up pictures of people fighting with various uh, implements oh, and weapons. I love that. I love that scene. Cause they're kind of debating about the woman in the one picture with the position of her hand and what she's actually doing. And they're really, really into what they're doing, like because they've got to fall into these certain categories and they've got those little shelves depending on weapon. And you do wonder what the hell are they doing? You know, they obviously spend so much time in this little room classifying things. Uh, but it, it ties into that everybody in the film, apart from Gulliver, is passive. Like everybody is just really passive. Uh, and the only time they really get annoyed is if somebody pulls them out of their little reality. They don't like disruption. They just want to go along with what they're doing. Everyone's re- like, I love the fact when the when Laputa comes over, it takes away the sun. All they do is just stand around and look at it. And they're like, well, it could be days, you know, it could be a few hours. And nobody does anything about it. They just stand around and send a cow up as sacrifice. So 
you know that whole passive thing with the with the characters is brilliant i think so it's almost like that even the the poet he can't give a speech at the end it's almost like he can't be bothered he just puts no fight into it at all the only scene i can think of where large numbers of people are motivated to do anything is the scene in the woods where they go out looking for the mysterious healing mineral waters and and they're all convinced once again you know back to your idea of the of the projection and the sentimentality that if they can just get a good drink of this pure water that uh the problems that they have with the world are going to somehow uh vanish and it turns into uh you know essentially a sort of riot and then the uh, uh villain character comes in and and you know shoots uh, uh one of the one of the young guys to get the to get the crowd back under control but that's really one of the few scenes where we see a significant number of people actually displaying any kind of sprezzatura at all and of course at the end we find out that most of them had had just been drinking rocks you know, that they've scooped that the, the people in charge of, you know, passing the water out, they just scooped up rocks from where the where the where the stream could have been or would have been. The scene in the woods where they go to drink this sacred or healing mineral water reminded me to an extraordinary uh degree of the scene at the end of Valerie and her week of wonders when every character from the film shows up in one exterior location. And I took a look at the scene again this morning, and most of the major characters that we see in the movie are in there somewhere, in, in, in those little clusters of people. It's Always- incredible, that scene. It kind of looks like a refugee camp as well at the same time. It's like they've gone there to find this heathing, and they're all gathered around, but it kind of looks like a refugee camp. It's not a place of celebration or everyone's kind of huddled together. It's really, well, there's so many striking scenes in the film. Every scene is a striking scene, but that one sticks out, I think, or stuck out for me as being one of the most memorable along with the opening. Well, that one comes right after he's being driven to that forest location and he looks out of the car window and he says, oh, I see you've had a war. And the woman next to him is like, no, why do you ask? (laughs) (laughs) It's just how horrible the landscape looks. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. That goes back to Hotel Ozone, which, of course, wasn't his. But that's like a really desolate kind of landscape as well, where there has been a war, obviously. But these rotting build, everything's rotten and decayed. Um, I like what Kevin said about the the association with Gothic, because I totally agree with that. And I think The Fifth Horseman is Fear is also kind of like a Gothic film. Um, and they kind of tie in with Uri Hertz is a cremator as well. Oh, God, it's such a great film. So wonderful. But using satire and Gothic tradition to make these political statements. And you've also got the Gothic double in there with Marquetta because the Gothic's all about devils and they use that quite a lot, the devil of the woman or people getting mistaken. Whereas in traditional Gothic, it's kind of more linear though, but it's, it seems to come from that same idea, I think of the devil. And then you've got the thing with the aristocracy and the people below, which is a huge scene for Gothic, like all the Lords up in the tower, always really corrupt. Um, Of course, we find out they're not that corrupt in this. They're just as lazy and passive as the people 
down below, they don't really care either. But yeah, it's it's an interesting connection, I think, to Gothic. And then especially with some of the cinematography as well, which is like really impressionistic with shadows and rotting old buildings and stuff. It's definitely, definitely got that. I think that's probably why I liked it so much as well. And once he gets to Laputa, I'm trying to remember, it seems like there are a lot of scenes of empty streets, like there's just barely anyone up there. Yes. A little almost like a Giorgio de Chirico painting, right? That there's there are these these town squares with all the gothic arches, right, that you know we've been seeing everywhere, but only one person over in the corner of the frame and he'll look, the person will disappear around a corner and he'll follow them. Absolutely. Which again, very much like a, a gothic horror film as far as that that spirit leading you around. And am I correct in remembering that the Dressed Rabbits, which again is a nice uh, uh, play on words. I didn't realize that as I was watching this with my wife, she's like, oh, a dressed rabbit, you know what that is. I'm like, no. And she's like, when you kill a rabbit and you get it ready for being cooked, you dress a rabbit. I was like, oh, okay, good. Good to know. <laughs> and uh, she was, uh, so we were watching that and the all the dressed rabbits come from Laputa. Am I remembering that they correctly? They do. I was going to mention that. It's almost like they set them out to fuck with the people downstairs have you noticed they've got like a whole like menagerie of these little rabbits and then when they're down below the odd one seems to just come out of nowhere and you get this idea that they're up in laputa just sending them down one at right. a time because he finds one by mistake in his hotel room up there just sort of must have gotten away from the handlers or something and then there are all those scenes where they're pulling the farm animals up to Laputa, and and they don't really explain that. It at first it looks like there's they're setting up a hanging, you know, like a gallows, and then they put this farm animal in the 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 noose, you know, as a harness, and then it just goes up out of frame, and the characters look up at that off screen space, you know, uh, at the top of the frame, and it's obvious they're just watching this this you know uh, uh, lamb or something being like pulled up you know, presumably to a restaurant in Laputa or something. It's a quite extraordinary scene. And once again, not remarked upon. You know, this is something that that characters are walking in and out of this public thing, this public space, and and uh there's a that great sinister cop figure that's always following him around uh uh I think his name is Fitzel and he keeps turning up to tell Gulliver like you're really you're really fucking up this is not looking good you know i i gotta tell you you know like like i gotta i gotta tell you you know i thought you were in trouble yesterday but the thing that you just pulled i I, you know i've been here for years and i don't know how you're gonna get out of that you know he's actually played by pavel landowski who was a dissident uh playwright he was one of the people in this uh cluster of folks who were making all this great stuff in the mid to late 60s and he was actually you know, barred from acting uh, in 71 or something. Uh, but the scene with the pulling up of the uh, of the lamb is something that just kind of happens. One of the things that happens is we will have a character move into a space. They will leave and we'll stay there just long enough to see some weird thing go on. And then we'll pick up where that character would be you know, maybe a minute later. And that, that was always one of my favorite scenes when we think that there's going to be a hanging, they, they truss up the lamb, the lamb goes 
up and then for another two or three seconds we just hold on this shot of everybody like looking up above the frame line there's something really sacrificial about it though almost like they worship the people up in the sky yes Um, a lamb indeed i wanted to say just talking about the cast um and the gothic connection the the woman who plays marquetta clara Yemakova was in the um, Czech Dracula. Has anyone seen that? It was like a TV version. No. She plays Mina Harker in that. She didn't have like a massive career, but she's Mina in that. It's so I keep. I think it was shot for uh, Czechoslovak television. It's in black and white, but it is really worth checking out. Um, and also talking of the Fifth Horseman is fear. The guy who plays Minodi Miroslav Machacek. <laughs> get that right he's dr braun in that the main character yes but if you look up all these guys the some of the stuff they were in the guy who, who who plays um gulliver the the some of their filmographies are just amazing the guy that plays gulliver he's got such a great face he has hasn't he he was a really prolific actor lubomir kostelka kostelka uh was in a in a huge amount of stuff as was miroslav Matoschek, they were kind of old hands at the Czech. But then you've got these other smaller characters that weren't in so many roles. And it's like Kevin said, a lot of people just stopped acting because of the political climate. Just like, um, just like directors had to stop. Just like Juracek uh, had to stop filming because this film was banned. Hitelova as well didn't make films for a long, long time because they couldn't work in that climate. Um, unless you kind of went into more traditional or, or filmmakers got cleverer at being subversive. I think there's still a lot of subversive films in the seventies, but it did kind of go more into that fantasy literature adaptation, drama, very uh, formal kind of filmmaking after that. And some of them just went into making incredibly conventional television shows for the rest of their career. You can see the filmography of a huge number of these people, and they go from this cadre of of very adventurous political and formal uh, dissidents and troublemakers. And then you look at their credits and particularly cinematographers, and it's just basically soap operas in the 70s and the 80s, you know, individual TV episodes. So, so TV well, the Czech Dracula is kind of like that. It, the Czech Dracula is like, I think maybe a year or a li- year after this might have been 71 or 72. It's early 70s, very formal and classic and completely different to this kind of gothic. This kind, I suppose Czech, Czechoslovakia didn't really have a horror tradition per se but they did have people that made horror films uh, but that is kind of more like a classic horror very staged it's brilliant though it's really worth watching but you couldn't the the contrast between the two roles for clara couldn't be any more different that's fantastic i've really got to check that out by the way when i went back to uh some of my notes on fifth horseman's fear mike i want to give a shout out to your excellent episode they did with uh, Sam Deegan and another guest on Derva Lorna, the Peter Laurie film and uh, uh, Fifth Horseman's Fear and, and the lost one really have a lot of elements in common, both in terms of their sort of horror expressionist noir, you know, connection, the, the world war two setting this, uh, uh, this, this sense of a, of a doctor who, who 
ends up being anything other than an aid and comfort to his fellow human beings. I'd really, really recommend uh, Fifth Horseman is Fear. But anybody who's listening, I would also heartily recommend uh, Mike's episode on the lost one, Dervalorn. It's really one of their uh, one of your finer uh, bits from recently, I think. I do go on about the Fifth Horseman is Fear a lot. It's just one of those films that I want everyone to watch because I just think I think more of a mainstream thing. If you like The Tenant or things like The Tenant, Clancy's The Tenant, then it's the film for you. I was going to mention The Tenant earlier when we were talking about The Doors, not Jim Morrison's band, but this this motif of The Door and and this idea that whatever is on the other side of The Door is not only not what you want to be there, but it's something so much worse than you could ever have imagined. And, and this idea of the discovering, uncovering, uncovering of the new space gets you deeper and deeper inside your own demons. I, I really, I think that's a, I think that's a great, I think that's a great comparison. I, I love uh, fifth horseman while we're doing our, our, our check film shout outs. Uh, I just wanted to quickly do uh, a shout out for another film that uh, Jan Kallis shot and that Yurchek wrote the screenplay. It's a great sci-fi movie from 1963 called Icarus XB1. Uh, it was released here in the U.S., dumped into the kitty matinee circuit, of course, uh, under the title Voyage to the End of the Universe. But it's this uh, it's a, a film set on board this this exploratory spaceship, a long long term mission and the mission has gone horribly wrong, and we trace the complete dissolution of the social contract in between all of the um, uh, all the people in the crew. And there's this one guy who's gone completely crazy, and they have him sort of in isolation. Uh, and for my money, I think uh, John Carpenter took a look at, uh, at that film before he did Dark Star. There are just some little bits of absurdist business in there uh, that, that I would strongly think that he might have cribbed a little bit. Uh, but uh, Jan Collis is one of the was one of the great European cinematographers of the 60s and 70s. And, and anything that he shoots just always looks great. He can do he can do that sort of claustrophobic chiaroscuro Wellesian pessimism as well as anybody. Talking to Czech sci-fi, because the guy who plays Gulliver in this, Lubomir Kostelka, probably pronounced that wrong. He was in some, because I love Czech sci-fi from the late 60s, early 70s. And I think that helped me with this film, because Czech sci-fi is often very, very surreal. And you do Mm. get these kind of societies that are set up with these ridiculous rules and all this crazy stuff happening but he was actually in um he was actually in um oh you were a widow sir which is a crazy little side oh i love that film yes (laughs) yeah he's in that and i think he was in who wants to kill jesse i think he was in that um it was either him or miroslav matacek was in it uh but you do get these actors popping out i think that has got this film has got that same kind of tradition some of their sci-fi is just completely off the wall I killed I, I killed Einstein, and um, tomorrow I'll wake up and scold myself with tea. It's one of my favourites. Yes. Oh God. Yes. It's just so madcap and crazy. 
Yeah. Oh, and he was also in The Girl on the Broomstick, Saxana. Oh, the one who played Gulliver, which is another weird little fantasy film with its own rabbits. It's brilliant. It's more of a kid's film, but it's about this witch called Saxana who's in her own Hogwarts. It's very much precursor to Harry Potter because they've got this school in the in this parallel dimension where the witches train, and she comes down to Earth. And one of the r- recurring jokes is she turns people into animals. She turns all these teachers into this school into rabbits. So, you know, I don't know a lot about Czech culture, so I don't know if there's some sort of significance, but there's rabbit rabbits all the way through that film as well. People getting one guy gets half turned is no, it's a woman, she's the secretary, she gets she's got rabbit teeth. Ironically enough, we just spoke about closely watched trains last week, and that has the rabbits in there and definitely a uh, symbol of fertility for that one. Which I've never seen. Would you believe that? Of all these films, that's so funny. Do you know, I've never seen it, and I started watching it recently. It's one of those films. You know when you keep trying to watch something and something happens? I've I've watched part of it, but I've never seen it all the way through. I've had about a few attempts. So when when your episode airs, I'm going to have to have no excuse not to watch it before I listen to that. Should we talk about the end of Case for a Rookie Hangman? Like what I said about the idealization, when they find out that the people in the sky don't really care, they can't deal with it. I just thought that was such a, an excellent twist. They just don't want to hear the truth. And the fact that this king has gone off to work as a doorman in Monte yes. Carlo, <laughs> mine is a bit boring in that uh, that place in the sky. They don't really do a lot. So, you know, I'd rather be in Monte Carlo. That dinner scene, the again, the interrogation of him when they're asking about Monte Carlo over and over and over again. He's just like, well, I've been there. He's like, well, you must know this guy. And he's like, uh, yeah, no. It's just it's so amazing. You don't even know why they're asking him these questions. And it's just he's getting more and more frustrated. I really like that. And when he goes back down to one of the officials uh, in Balne Barbie, and that official, I'm trying to remember his name, but he's got, he keeps dropping things, and he's got all of these newspapers all over his floor, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah, he's, he's the governor, yes. <laughs> the governor, yes, thank the you. Governor. Yes, he's the yes. one with the nuts when he hands out that nut, and Gulliver tries to crack the nut, and he cracks his glass right. table. <laughs> yes. <that> bit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he keeps putting the he will put the nut on the shelf and it'll roll off. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of those classic Czech absurd surreal moments that if the joke takes four seconds to register and be funny, you have to draw it out to eight or ten seconds. That business with the nut, it was funny, and then they just kept doing it. And and the the anxiety that the character was experiencing was exacerbated by the tedium that we were experiencing. Yeah, we get the joke and and we just look at the thing roll with him with this agonized look on his face. That really <laughs> is that's you know uh, what what was it uh, uh, Andy Warhol said about the Velvet Underground? We we always like to leave them uh, want, uh, wanting less. 
It kind of reminds me of uh, some of those boardroom scenes or, or some of the uh, the office scenes in the Hudsucker Proxy, where they just will belabor these jokes. But I love it when they do that. I mean, the whole idea of the, the trash can on fire and Norville Barnes getting his foot stuck in the trash can. Uh, yeah. And yeah. again, it just goes on for a long time. Putney Swope it has yes. a, a, has has a lot of scenes like that, you know, in the in the, the corporate world. Yeah, the, these meetings that just devolve into complete absurdity. And the governor is so upset about learning about Prince Minotti that he ends up trying to kill Gulliver very violently <laughs> with so a hatchet. Yeah, he's just so angry, can't deal with it. It's kind of sad, really, as well, because. You know, he's lived in this little office with his nuts and his newspapers, thinking that he's got serving some purpose. And then he just can't deal with the fact that actually the king's fucked off to Monte Carlo um, and you're just down here doing nothing. He just can't deal with it. He just loses his mind. Well, one of the cool things about the satire here is one might imagine that a subversive socially critical film about Eastern Bloc communism in the late 60s to the early 70s would be we would ultimately discover that the people who are in power are sociopaths or narcissists or, or, or incipient fascists. And, and we discover nothing like that here. No one in this film would be a credible villain as you know, might be popularly imagined, you know, being present in a film that is a satire about, you know, Warsaw Pact totalitarianism. It's really just this sense of hopelessness and futility, you know, and the governor, uh, presumably his inner states are probably actually closer to those of an act, actual party uh, apparatchnik you know, in the Czech Communist Party than than this idea of a sort of Bondian supervillain in this big seminar room or something. So I, I thought that was really quite quite an interesting aspect of the, the social critical, uh, socially critical d- dimension of the film. It's just this sense of lassitude and pointlessness of the person in that part of the film who has the most power. Like technically, you kind of can't go over his head down there. And what we get at the end is this sense of of being completely defeated because, as you said, Mike, he serves no useful purpose at all. And the people are just they go after him. I mean, it becomes the the, speaking of gothic horror, it's the villagers with the uh, pitchforks and torches basically coming after him. Uh, Not literally in this case, but when he, he finally ends up getting out of town and he goes off with the person I would kind of consider to be the village idiot. Do you guys agree with that? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So another shunned person, let's say, but, but they're, they're constantly talking about the learning disabled in the film, right? The characters are obsessed with the idea that there are some of us who can successfully use instrumental reason and then there were those unfortunates, right? And of course, we see that, you know, instrumental reason is 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 something that no one can do, right? But they're all obsessed. So many conversations strangely veer into you know, directions of uh, uh, that 
Gulliver will be in a place and people will be asking him questions. And then one of the other person uh, will turn to the other and said, could he be an imbecile then? Right. Yeah. And, and, I, and so, so the village idiot, uh, for lack of a better word, yeah, that would make sense that, that, that would be the person. Right. I'm sorry, Kat, what were you going to say? I was going to say, did anyone see parallels to slightly earlier film, Nemec's a report on the party and the guests? Mm-hmm. Have you seen that one? That's like when they go for this bizarre picnic that's got all these weird rules and stuff. That's a Similar, fantastic movie. Yeah. Really, I think that's. I'm not sure if possibly. that played some influence or. You know, well, uh, I think so, because all of the people who were in that film, they were all FAMU, you know, students and and graduates. And that was really uh, at least uh, Haynes talks about this in his book, uh, that that there was the FAMU um, filmmaking cluster and then the Vaclav Havel uh, uh, live theater group and and sort of. That that was the Venn diagram of where uh, all these people came from. Uh, uh, certainly, Lewandowski uh, would have been uh, had had his foot in both of those worlds, and so I'm, I certainly think that Party and the Guest must have been a real signature film for that was '65, right? Something I've had for Dormer. '66, I think. Was it '66? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, '66. Yeah. That, that was year. golden year. Yeah. 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 Um, and so you could imagine with the the, the, the heady success of an extraordinary film like that, uh, filmmakers becoming even bolder as we move through 67, 68. Uh, and then, of course, uh, it all kind of clamps shut. But I, I certainly think that uh, Party and the Guests would be kind of a source film or even probably some sort of uh overlap at least if not in terms of the personnel working on the film the the circles out of which ideas like this would be hatched definitely what's well, interesting too at the end of the film he goes back to that voiceover we've lost the voiceover through most of the film we talked about it at the beginning how he was addressing i guess a panel of people he keeps saying gentlemen gentlemen as he's uh, relating these events that happen and it goes back to him finally saying, you know, then it happened. I became perplexed again. And I turned to the idiot saying, listen, Vysok, is this watch running backwards or am I just imagining it? And of all people, you know, here comes the wisdom of the idiots. Why do you keep making a fuss? You should just be happy that it's ticking. <laughs> Which is <Yes>. great. <laughs> it's so great. Don't worry if the watch is running forwards or backwards. You should just be happy that it's ticking. So it's working in some capacity. <laughs> <laughs> just allow the ticking to to placate you. There's one of the gothic horror films, uh, uh, not Hammer, but you know, so one of the one of the artier um, uh, Anglo uh, gothic films that, that, that the, the watch starts working again, and that's when they know they're out. So. Uh, but yes, yes. At it's least not it, Legend it, of Hell House, is it? I don't think so, because I never remembered liking that one enough to pay attention to any of the motifs in it. Um, I like that film. <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful film. But when when it came out, I was in eighth grade, and I wanted uh, you know decolletage and gore because it was a British horror film. I think it's definitely got this. Um, and we haven't really talked about Kafka much, but it's got that element but also Dostoevsky with these weird characters like the idiot and you've got Dostoevsky's the idiot who's like this pure innocence 
Um, it definitely ties into that whole end of the century fan de siècle Russian movement that was a little bit gothic and a little bit absurd and very satirical. It definitely comes from that foundation, I think, this film. Let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with Peter Hames, the author for me of an essential book, The Czechoslovak New Wave. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses all things Grindhouse, Exploitation, Drive-In, and B-Movies. Your three hosts, Mike. We're going to discuss the Rene Martinez-directed picture, The $6,000... Last what? Time. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the name of the Super movie. That's, that's brother. the name. When you that's start the movie. Your DVD cover. When you start the movie, the first thing that's that comes up says. is the title, and it says $6,000. Mark. And I've been around a girl stroking a horse's dick. Somehow, somewhere down the line, I'm going to use that clip against you. Shh. <laughs> <Good>. Please do. <laughs> and listener favorite, Iris. The deployment sock. And I'm like, deployment sock? What the fuck? The deployment sock. He goes, you know, you know that sock that you just use. Oh my god, you guys are so gross! <laughs> See, so it happens for real. People do come inside. We'll make you question your political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop Sunday and can be found by searching for BB and BC Podcast via iTunes, Lipson, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and everywhere else you can download quality podcasts from. You can also listen to episodes directly from the show's website at bbnbcpodcast.com. After Movie Diner promo, take one. John Wayne here from the Brannigan Podcast. Has anyone seen the full Vernon? No, try again. Sweaty Vernon here from the... No, come on. Hey, how's it going? I'm Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll tune in to After Movie Diner. It's my favorite podcast. Better, but also at the same time completely useless. Um, Try and mention the movie reviews, the interviews with independent film directors, things like that. Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast here. Hoping you'll turn in for a... It's tune-in. Christ. <laughs> Matt Ringler from the Schlock Treatment Podcast. Hoping you'll turn in. <laughs> saying turn in. How hard is it? Just to point the damn show. Do it right or I'm going to come down there and nail your face to the fridge. Listen up, folks. Matt Ringler here from Schlock Treatment. I want to tell you about a great podcast, The After Movie Diner. There's plenty of pie and everything's delicious, especially the host, the sweaty Vernon. No, 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 no. I mean, he didn't even mention that the podcast is available every Monday at amdpodcast.blogspot.com and iTunes. Idiot. Hey. Hello. A little bit of introduction. We are the Film Room Cast. I am Albert Wiltfong. I am Austin Shin. And we talk about movies. We just we talk about anything we like to our heart's content. We talk about everything from the very best films ever made to the very worst. <laughs> and we have scraped the bottom of the barrel on the worst ones. It's it's not what you'd expect either. No, no, no. We are the uh, kind of cast for which Birdemic is a step above some of the stuff we've covered. I hesitate to say this, but the room is a little bit higher than some of the stuff we've covered. But on the other hand, we've also covered stuff like The Godfather, Magnolia... We've covered the very best cinema has to offer, the very worst, so don't try to pigeonhole us. And of course, we like to talk about the hot-button topics, 
We try not to get too political, but we take a political stance. We're people. We have to. We have a huge backlog. We've been running for about three years. We've got casts on the MPAA. We've got stuff on, like, adaptations. We've got stuff on movies that have been turned into TV shows. A couple of nostalgia retrospectives looking at things like movie theaters and video stores. Proud of those ones. And we've even got at least one cast on a movie that doesn't exist, so <laughs> got that. Oh yeah, with, uh, with more to come. So that's us. That's us. Uh, so yeah, listen to the film room. I have to credit the backtrack. It is from John Carpenter's album Lost Themes. I suggest picking up that album. It's a really great album. But yeah, you can find us at thefilmroom.podbean.com or on iTunes if you prefer to subscribe there. We're out there. Yeah. Thank you all. Hope you listen to us and good night. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit and you mentioned 1968 and the whole uh, squaring of the circle is that what helped play a role in the definite changes that we have in uh, Czechoslovakia when it comes to something like case for a rookie hangman the it seems like the whole political landscape might have changed by that time well I, th- I think 68 it became possible to make films in 68 that couldn't have been made before yeah in that sense that's true but I think a lot of the films that came to fruition then were uh, had been planned long before. Um, I think Juracek, uh, for instance, said on who made Case for the Rookie Hangman um, had been planning or working on that script for a long time. Uh, but it became possible to make it in in '68. What was Pavel Juracek's background? Uh, he was a screenwriter, or he graduated in screenwriting, as did Milos Forman, incidentally, I think in the early 60s, around 62. And he'd already scripted a number of films, including including Ikaria XB1 and uh, Carol Zeman's The Jester's Tale and Jan Schmidt's The End of August at Hotel Azone, uh, which were all sort of had a sort of fantasy science fiction element to them, I would say. He'd done a lot of screenwriting, and uh, as a director, uh, he made his debut in 64 with Josef Kilian, which was co-directed with Jan Schmidt, um, and, um, and he then went on to make uh, Every Young Man, which he made while he was doing national service in the army, and uh, also, of course, Case for the Rookie Hangman, but only the three films. He only directed three films. Case for the for Rookie Hangman. It's uh, it's a pretty dense work. Um, <laughs> not the easiest thing to pick apart. What's kind of your take on the film? I tend to go along with the view that if you don't understand something, you're not meant to understand it. You know uh, <laughs> that. Um, uh, I think uh, well. A good example of, well, Juracek said it was a film, the film was a world of dreams. And I think that's, that's a good way of sort of categorizing it. Uh, in other words, it's not meant to make total sense. It is a world of dream, of reflection, of flashback, and so on.
I got a quote here from him, and he said, the world in which we live baffles logic and reason has lost its meaning. And I think that sort of in, informs certainly Joseph Killian and the case for the rookie hangman. Um, and uh, another quote I've got is, he presents a world that is both familiar and unfamiliar with the logical connections destroyed, where clues and illusions invite interpretation. Um, those are his own comments, so uh, I think uh, I think that's uh, that's the nature of the film. Obviously, it's uh, an adaptation of Gulliver's Travels or the third book of Gulliver's Travels, although it's not a strict adaptation. It uses the characters and elements to uh, create its own world. Um, it's the story of somebody uh, who is out of place, as it were. I think there is a sense of, um, maybe I'm alone in thinking this, but I think there's a sense of Alice in Wonderland about it, because at the beginning of the film there's a car crash, and he goes down, falls down a tunnel, comes out at the end and finds a hare with a watch a dead hare with a watch. Well, that seems to be very sort of Alice in Wonderland-like. Um, uh, hare Oscar, it appears. Uh, we don't know much about Hare Oscar, except that at some stage, um, we learn at the end of the film that um, there were hares that were trained to perform, and they were they were released into the world into the wilderness. Um, but the theme of these sort of strange hair dressed in human costume uh, sort of continues through the film. That opening when he goes to the house and the floorboards are moving and he's seeing the things under the floor, I mean, that is just such a, a an amazing sequence. It's, and in some ways, it's very like Joseph Killian, which I don't know if you remember, was a story about a man who borrows a cat from a, a shop where you borrow cats. Um, and then tries to return it after the weekend, only to find that the shop has disappeared and never existed. And then he's lonely, he ends up with a cat which he's trying to get rid of, and he has to has interviews with various bureaucrats who always and none of whom understand him and kind of accuse him of various crimes and so on. This is a sort of rather Kafkaesque tale, and it seems to be that in many ways Gulliver, the central character in case of the rookie hangman, is the same sort of character adrift in a world that he can't understand, where he's trying to justify himself all the time to people, um, to, to other authorities. Uh, and uh, the world is kind of um, absurd and somewhat meaningless. It's quite interesting that in one of the scenes in Case for the Rookie Hangman, the hero of Joseph Killian turns up and is shown uh, with his cat from the previous film. So there are, are obviously links from uh, between the two films. Gulliver is another character who is... Uh, adrift in a world that he doesn't understand, uh, trying to understand it, trying to justify himself, trying to justify his existence, um, but also constantly re remembering his dead girlfriend uh, from many years ago. <laughs> Do you think that the girlfriend actually is dead, or does he prefer to remember her as being dead? 
Ah, uh, well, that's uh, an interesting question. I have read some psychoanalytical theories about this, but uh, I wouldn't want to uh, speculate on that. Uh, he, uh, the, the girlfriend sort of does reappear uh, in the film, or the, the face of the girlfriend reappears in the in the in, in the char- in, in other characters, both in the world of Balnibarbi, where Gabriella resembles the girlfriend, and in Laputa, where Princess Nike resembles the girlfriend. Clearly, there's a fantasy element to all this. And he does actually say, or there is an element of the film, when he says, uh, of course, I knew that I was not in the corridors of my grammar school, but in a house built by a madman, and that Marquetta was no longer alive. So it, it, it does actually say in the film, of course, I know in reality Marquette is no, alive, no longer alive. She's dead. Whether she ever existed is another matter. Uh, that's open to speculation, I think. She's something that he longs for, but remains sort of eternally absent. Now, we talked about closely watched trains, and that became an international hit, got an Academy Award. What was the fate for a case for a rookie hangman? Well, that was banned, of course. <laughs> Difficult to know the answers as to why certain films were banned, I think. Uh, there was something like 100 films banned from the 60s. In the, uh, in the early 70s, they decided to ban something like 100 films. In that sense, it wasn't exceptional. But, uh, of course, not only was the film banned, but so was Juracek. He wasn't able to make any more films. The reasons for banning films obviously have to do anything really subversive and critical of the system uh, was banned. Anything which might be perceived to be critical of the system would be banned as well. And I think this film would be seen as, uh, or could be interpreted as an attack on the system. And because we're here, we're talking about somebody who's living in a world he doesn't understand where power is detached from the center of power, which is in the, the, the floating land of Laputa, is detached from the reality of Balnibarbi for a start. So you've got this, a separation of, of, of the, of, uh, of absolute power. Uh, you've got person who's traveling through a world which is meaningless, uh, which is full of accusation, it seems, also because um, Gulliver is uh, interrogated by various committees, for instance, by a committee of students and by a committee of simple people uh, whose chair is a chairman is a child. Um, he also goes to the Academy of Letters, uh, where he is introduced to machines which do all the thinking for you. It is uh, the object of the machines is to remove unnecessary thought, and he is told no one should think unnecessarily, Mr. Gulliver. So there are lots of things in the film which certainly could be con- construed as a comment on contemporary society. Then I have to say, thinking about the the, the film. Now, and Joseph Killian, it seems to be very appropriate to not just a communist society in the 1960s, but uh, contemporary society. I mean, it is more and more like the world of Urachik, <laughs> in my view. Urachik also uh, wrote uh, Daisies, and was that one banned as well? 
technically not, as far as, far as I recall. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean it got shown widely. Um, uh, I, it's difficult to know sometimes why particular films or particular filmmakers are banned. I think it sometimes had to do with personalities as well as with the subject matter of films. Uh, if you've got somebody, I remember, was uh, watching an inter- interview with uh, Jan Yemitz recently, the director of the r- report on the party and the guests, and he he said that um, after the uh, Russian invasion, he went to the head of the short film studios and asked if he was if he could make a film, and they said, well, well, we'll let you make a, an instructional film of it. I think it was to do with ambulances and hospitals or something like that. Uh, and he said, okay, and he went away and made the film, and it won an award. And he, said, he then went back and said, well, can I make another film? They said, no, that one was too good. As soon as you get the chance, you'll stab us in the back. Uh, so that... And I, I'm quite sure that their their assessment was probably correct, uh, but I, but I think um, you know this was the same person that later allowed Pete Deliver to make the Apple game. I mean, the head of the studio. So um, it worked in different ways. Um, I think, um, for instance, Pete Deliver managed to return to filmmaking in about '76. And I think that was possibly due to the fact that she was a woman and determined and uh, uh, that the authorities would have got bad publicity out of uh, any sort of further victimization. But you can't tell. Quite a lot of filmmakers were, in fact, out of work from 70 to 76 uh, and returned to work in the late 70s. So there appears to have been some sort of softening of the uh, regime at that stage, but um, it's difficult to tell. I, I think Yurachek would have been seen as somebody who would not be sort of amenable to uh, adapting to the system. And of course, you had to uh, uh, confirm that you supported the uh, uh, friendly invasion of 1968 before you were allowed to work anyway. If you didn't do that, you were in difficulty. Friendly invasion. That doesn't. That sounds like a contradiction in terms. <laughs> the friendly armies, they're called. <laughs> so there are many reasons why I, I, I think um, I, I, did, I did read somewhere that he did make a short film somewhere, but uh, I don't think I, I know where or who made it, where he made it. In uh, 1989, I went to a, a film week in Czechoslovakia. And it was quite interesting because I discovered, much to my surprise, that the Fireman's Ball was actually showing in the local cinema. Uh, this was in the summer, I think July. And um, and then um, uh, I, I also noticed on one day that all, all the all checks disappeared. And I said, where's everyone gone? Oh, we're, we're listening to a, or watching a, an illicit interview with Havel. And then su- subsequently to that, I was invited to the Czech Film Archive and said, we're going to show you, we're, we're able to show you a film before you go, uh, go back to England. And uh, I was due to catch a plane in the afternoon. And in the morning, they showed me a case for the rookie hangman. And it was shown on a Steenbeck editing machine. And uh, as the... Um, 
uh, archive, uh, shall we say, the archive technician was supervising the film. She was saying, listen to it crack. This is the first time it's been shown <laughs> for many years. And I obviously this was long, but this was before the um, uh, Velvet Revolution. But things were loosening up clearly, and uh, uh, films were being made available. And as a special treat, I was going to see a case for the rookie hangman on a Steenbeck, providing I caught the next plane out, as far as I could see. <laughs> so you know that, that the tales of forbidden fruit, you know, uh, seeing all the banned movies, whether it was on video or. Of, you know, <laughs> so they all had a. It's still forbidden fruit, obviously, because people don't know the movie. They soon will. I believe there's going to be a, a UK release of it. Uh, I'm not quite sure when. Maybe this year or next year. Well, there's that um, the key to defining dwarves or Lemuel Gulliver's final voyage. Guess you would call it a documentary. The way that the friendly invasion is portrayed in there is definitely anything but friendly. I think those are ironic references uh, to the friendly armies. Uh, you had to accept the fact that they were actually, uh, you know, helping, uh, helping the country survive counter-revolution, basically. But I think it's key to determining Gross's interesting film, uh, and it is, uh, I think, an excellent film about, um, precisely about Juracek and, uh, with Juracek actually acted or played by his son, Marek Juracek. And so you've got this kind of combination of documentary footage and, uh, um, sorry, staged footage based on Juracek's diary, which is a, a massive work, uh, which charts his work on, um, well, it, there's a lot of reference in it to, uh, uh, case of the Rookie Hangman. Then I notice even in the, the film that it kind of moves time around, which is kind of an interesting thing due to mm. just the way that, uh, your objects really seem to embrace surrealism. And I would say that by breaking time into, um, nonlinear fashion is, uh, pr- pretty much a, a great way to start to become surrealist. Mm. Yeah. 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 And no, at the end of the film, the clock is working, is running backwards in time. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think there was some sort of original idea, although it's not in the film, that the, 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 the film was going to be about a society which was progressing towards barbarism, or going backwards in a way. Yeah, I, I think the sort of experiment with time is uh, is important in the film, yeah. Well, it's so sad that he never got to make another film again. Yes. Actually, in 68, uh, if I recall correctly, he was actually working as part of the production group at uh, Varendorf Studios uh, and was responsible for this film, in fact, more directly. So uh, uh, I think the fact that he'd been given a, a sort of control of production in 68 and then kicked out uh, is uh, interesting. Uh, it obviously, uh, I think the assumption there would have been having been left in control of any production, it would would not have been something anyone approved of. But, <laughs> but I found it rather, I came in, and this is, by the way, I think, it's, uh, I, I was reading an interview with Ivan Passa the other day, and he said that, um, I don't know whether this is relevant to what we're discussing or not, but he said that uh, uh, 
culture in France was a kind of a matter of good manners. Uh, culture in England was like a thief in the night, and culture in Czechoslovakia was absolutely essential to society. It was something crucial uh, to life. Uh, I think that's quite interesting because um, it, it, one has a sense with the Czech New Wave and, and all of these filmmakers that they were doing something which they considered to be relevant, important, and uh, sort of contributing to the life of society. Uh, they weren't just making movies uh, for the sake of their own sort of self-indulgence. Mr. Ames, what are you working on these days? I've just been working on a, a chapter for a new book, which is going to be published in Germany uh, next year on the Czech New Wave. Um, and uh, I'm also uh, editing a, a special issue on uh, Vera Hitilova for studies in East, Eastern European cinema, which is due to come out next year sometime. <laughs> Uh, and a few odds and ends. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they kind of, these, these jobs seem to arrive from uh, nowhere sometimes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time this morning. It was a real pleasure talking with you again. Oh, good, good. I, well, I hope you, uh, you have enough there for what you want. We're back, and we were talking about case for rookie hangman. Now, I know, Cap, before we started recording, you said you didn't get a chance or couldn't get a good working copy of that. You can't really call it a documentary about the film, but a documentary about your object a little bit. Uh, the Key for Determining Dwarves or The Last Temptations of Lemuel Gulliver. Kevin, did you get a chance to see that one? No, I have not. Oh, we're in the naughty corner. I'm oh, sorry. you guys are fine. You guys are fine. It's a little difficult I mean, to find. I chose to go back and reread Gulliver's Travels because, okay, so yeah, I, I fucked up. I, I, I did the wrong homework assignment, Professor Boardwell. <laughs> no, no problem. The, it, well, I think it was very crucial that we talk about uh, Swift in this one. But yeah, Key to Determining Dwarves or The Last Travel of Lemuel Gulliver is really remarkable it's a little difficult to find but it is out there with english subtitles so if people want to check it out i would definitely recommend it it's actually by jirovsek's son and he stars as his father in the film there's some historical footage there's a lot of recreations the text of the film is i would say nearly 100 percent uh jirovsek's uh diaries and a lot of it is talking about his i guess she's his wife or girlfriend and their daughter and how the wife takes the girl away and the girl actually kind of either her in real life or her figure she's this juditha character that shows up a couple times early on in the film and so there's a lot of jurassic inside of uh, inside a case for a rookie hangman and he spent a lot of years working on it and even at the beginning of the documentary his wife keeps saying it's either me or this screenplay and it eventually ends up being the screenplay so because she ends up leaving and so this whole idea the missing woman the missing girl really 
plays a part in uh, in uh, case for a rookie hangman. And even with that, I mean, when he's done shooting the movie, he knows that it will probably get censored. It might not ever get shown. It ended up kind of getting shown, but not a whole lot, as we heard Professor uh, Hames talk about. And yeah, it uh, he this was his last film. It was just amazing that he just made this movie and then pretty much got drummed out of the industry. The film is subversive, but I, I feel terrible that this was, you know, I love the movie, but it, it just, it's so bad that he was such a great filmmaker and he just ends up being banned from making films anymore. I think it's sad. He died quite young as well, didn't he? And he died just before the war came down and communism ended. So he never really got to see the other side, which is really, really sad. Yeah, I think he died uh, early 89. So, yeah, you're right, right before the wall came down. Which is just tragic, really. If we're to trust the timeline of Atomic Blonde, the new Charlize Theron film. As long as I get my first edition of the Iliad, I'll be fine. I'm sorry, that was the Odyssey. It is quite sad that so many filmmakers didn't get to realize, you know, what they were capable of because of bureaucracy and because of the state. Because there's so much talent in that little period, the mid-60s up to the 70s, so much talent and brilliant ideas, and then bang. And, and the novel in, in, all of those, um, in all of those Warsaw Pact nations, I mean, the, that, was, that was a major renaissance in Slavic literature also. It just was an extraordinary period. Czech films particularly the new wave films and the animated films of Carl Zeman, they really seem to have had an early and profound influence on filmmakers working in the UK. I'm thinking of, of Kubrick clearly on the other side of the Czech new wave films of 64 to 66, his sense of surrealism and, and satire changed. But the filmmaker that just is just plagiarizing Czech cinema over and over and over again and and then much more self-consciously and deliberately reworking elements from them in his later films is Terry Gilliam. All of those, you know, interstitial animated bits and uh, the Monty Python stuff, I mean, so clearly indebted to, to Czech animation. Is there a, a, a reason that some of these films might have found uh, fertile ground in in the UK was were, were they widely shown or could it have just been a certain countercultural affinity? I've always wondered about about why that British filmmakers of a particular generation really seem to groove on these Czech films. I think there was. I mean, it's a bit before my time, Kevin. So, <laughs> well, but, but so no, but so was speaking... the novel The Monk, and you have uh, taught me much <laughs> about that. So. Go ahead. Yes, my other obsession. No, um, from talking to people that I know, I think they did find some ground. They were shown here. Um, and obviously, early 70s, late 60s, there was a you know a lot of interest in European art films here. And I know Barofchek's films were shown here. And obviously, Terry Gilliam got to see them through, I think he was at university, because he's a big supporter of the Arrow uh, Barofchek restoration. Oh, okay. um, I think he's he's come out and, and said, you know, how influenced he was by Barofchek and how he saw these films when he was a student. So... 
there was kind of this like little herb of art films being shown in the UK into the 70s uh, and a culture that grew up around that. And people who were kind of a generation below me or, or and, and beyond obviously remember that. But then even our television, um, I was talking to somebody recently because we used to get a lot of strange stuff on television, especially European stuff. And I was talking to somebody recently who said they remembered seeing Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scold Myself with Tea on BBC Two in the early 80s. Yeah, like 1982, they just show this satirical Czech sci-fi about uh, what's Nazi comedy and (laughs) lots of satire. Uh, so I don't know. We had a weird culture in that respect, in that you could get access to to those things, and I guess they they did play a big influence. Um, I was talking to Harry Kummel recently, actually, because oh, my wow. book on Daughters of Darkness, and he was telling me how well Daughters of Darkness did here in the UK initially, because you know it was more of an art film and it was very well received at the time and got shown here but then also it was shown on 42nd street and stuff (laughs) so it was Uh, like a weird thing you know it was one of those weird things where it was being shown as a cease film but also as an art film but he was quite proud of the fact that it had been embraced by the quote-unquote english art community um so yeah an excited time to live i just missed it by i was 74 so i just missed it well, thank goodness for DVDs, right? Exactly. I know. Exactly. God, where would we be? And BBC Two and Channel 4 here in the That's UK. It also used to show a lot of weird stuff. <laughs> well, you know, a lot of the Czech New Wave films were picked up and distributed in the U.S. by a company called Sigma 3. Uh, and and they did both art cinema and then uh, art films that could also cross over to the exploitation you know, film thing. And, and if you look at the films that they distributed in this period, it's kind of extraordinary and heartbreaking that they didn't take a chance on this one. That that if you look at the films that they put out, that were coming out of Czechoslovakia from like 65 to 71, it's kind of weird that this one never was shown in the U S theatrically, at least, at least, I think in non-festival. I think it, yeah, I think it would have been quite alienating though for an American audience. Well, but the, I mean, it's, it's not like a, the Yan it's show. It's not films. really a John. Well, yeah, we've got Yan show as well. Yan show had a lot more nudity though. Oh, uh, okay, yeah, there is that. Okay, I forgot about Yan show's nudity, but uh, there, there's <laughs> a lot of fairly. I mean, not Miklos himself. He hired conventionally attractive young women to get naked in his films. Uh, But I I think of that period from about 1965 to 1975 as the time where American audiences seem to be the most receptive to some of these new wave cinemas from all over the world, you know, from Brazil, like a lot of those films got theatrical releases here. They played in, in art cinemas, you know, Uh, the French new wave, uh, wasn't really that big in the U.S. That was kind of more of a uh, uh, like a sort of marketing thing, you know, that kind of didn't pan out. But those new cinemas, you know, the the generational turnover that starts in like 58 or 59 and continues into the mid to late 60s, almost every film industry, right, had that generational turnover. Uh, 
this is the time, you know, once again, closely watched trains. I mean, that was, that was one of those art films that like all of your parents film, friends had seen, you know what I mean? It was like a particular kind of cultural touchstone. And I'm just surprised that somehow this wasn't something people wanted to take a chance on. I know for me, and I'll probably talk about this as we go through the rest of these Czech timber titles when I was running Super Epiphone, Fun, the uh, <clears throat> gray market site years ago, it was one of my missions to help bring a lot of these Czech New Wave films uh, to light for people just because they were hard to get. They were coming out on DVD with English subtitles in Czechoslovakia, but people either wouldn't buy them because they weren't sure of the region codes. They couldn't buy them because they couldn't figure out how to order through the Czech websites didn't understand you know they they didn't know which ones were good which ones were bad so i tried to be that kind of tastemaker and help bring some of these out so and even to the point where i would uh if i could find somebody to help me subtitle them i would try to help subtitle and marry subtitles to different uh versions of these prints i mean in a couple weeks cat will be talking about a happy end and i'm a huge lipsky fan so I, that was one of my missions was to try to bring Lipsky's movies to the U.S. as much as I possibly could, albeit through my limited and highly illegal means of doing it. But I felt that it was really kind of a film fan's duty to bring these out. It's a mission oh. worth doing, though, isn't it? I mean, a big, massive thanks to Second Run DVD. Yes. Actually, yes. in the U.K., my own obsession with Czech film maybe only started five or six years ago, and it was mainly due to them because their whole model, I know they're moving to Blu-ray now, but their original model was to put things out on DVD very cheaply. So a lot of those films I picked up were blind buys because they were so cheap. I like the cover or whatever. And that's where it started. And then obviously, as my obsession's grown and I have a lot more to learn, it's getting hold of them. Like I'm on a mission to find everything by Uri Hertz. And I'm, I'm even at the point of watching things in Czech now when I don't even speak Czech. But you know you've got a problem when you get to that stage. And if new subtitles come available, it's like, oh, brilliant. I think it has been overlooked, even more so than Polish film. But there's so much coming out of that whole period of Czech-Slovak cinema um, that's been neglected that anyone getting them out there, whether it's Grey Market or on DVD, it's a really worthwhile mission because it will grow. I've found like the last couple of years I've seen there's more popularity. And I'm not quite sure whether it's because a lot of these films or the ones that have been restored are now finding their way to streaming services or they're just more available. But more and more people... Yeah, and Criterion, more people are, are becoming interested, which is a great thing, because obviously the more interest, the more likely we are to see these things restored. And I know Second Run are now uh, working on a lot of Carol Zeman stuff, and, you know, they've got some great stuff in the pipeline as well. So in order for them to be able to do that, it has to be a market. So if people are watching these things on YouTube or bootleg you know, because that's the only way that can't be a bad thing in this case, because it will ultimately lead to demand because they're so beautiful. I mean, to see this, if you, if you get a chance to see it or if, if we get a chance to ever see it restored, I mean, it's a beautiful film anyway oh to God, watch it yes. in a kind of degraded way, you know, but all the fifth horseman is fear 
or The Cremator on Blu-ray. You know, they're really, really beautiful films and deserve to be shown that way. But it comes down to to economics, you know, so there has to be the demand there. So I'm really excited, more, and I'm excited you're doing this, Mike, because, again, it's like platforming and showcasing Czech film. It's going to get more people interested. So I don't know. From your mouth. The bootlegger is our friend. If you like William Shakespeare, thank a bootlegger because nobody except Ben Johnson, and they thought he was crazy, published their plays in Elizabethan England. And it was only after stenographers attended the plays at the Globe Theater and hastily, you know, transcribed the dialogue that they were hearing and they were circulated in these cheap folio editions that uh, Shakespeare later started publishing his plays in the quarto versions that, that the world of business administration and in Elizabeth, Elizabethan England had developed this need for all of these different stenographic systems. And there would be no plays of Shakespeare now, had it not been for that sort of, semi-underground pamphleteer, uh, you know, bootleg press, you know. And and so there's just no way that people would know who Mario Bava was and why Lisa and the Devil is a better film to watch than House of Exorcism had it not been for, you know, luminous video works and all those, you know, those, those companies back in the 80s and 90s. Because ultimately... The people who buy the luminous film and video works VHS of Lisa and the Devil are also going to buy the Blu-ray 20 years later. There's just no doubt in my mind. I mentioned uh, Sigma 3, the distributor, just as I was blathering off the top of my head uh, earlier. And I'm looking at their their uh, uh, their filmography and the cat, you'd find this interesting. Uh, started off with a, a double feature of Awful Dr. Orloff and Horrible Dr. Hitchcock. And then they distributed Fifth Horseman is Fear, uh, Cul-de-Sac, Closely Watched Trains, Daisies, Report on the Party, and The Guests. And uh, I saved the best for last, uh, Carry On Screaming. Nice. So, yeah, yeah. So, so carry on screaming. In the same year, they distributed in the in the the, the exact the, in the same year they distributed carry on screaming, closely watched trains, uh, and daisies, and uh, people meet and sweet music fills the heart. And they they stopped in 1970 when they released uh, De Palma's High Mom. So they were definitely one of those one of those companies that that really tried to play both the the art film and the kind of uh, exploitation film and then the uh, art film exploitation crossover and stuff. But I, I still think they could have they could have snuck this film out there and, and made a little bit of money. All right, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
That's right. We'll be continuing Check Timber next week with a discussion of The Cremator. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Kevin and Kat. Kevin, what is the haps with you lately, sir? I am doing all kinds of cool stuff, and I couldn't be happier. I'm working on a book that I've been working on for many, many years now uh, called uh, From Beavis and Butthead to Tea Party Nation, Dumb White Guy, Politics and Culture in America. And as soon as I can figure out uh, what how weird that last chapter is going to get, I, I hope to uh, finish it up soon. Uh, I'm also working on a book on uh, American moving image pornography after 1994, tentatively uh, called Channels of Pleasure. And essentially what I'm going to try to do there is I'm going to try to treat the move away from narrative in in uh, the American uh, art and business of pornography that, you know, we have a lot of uh, a lot of people have written on the sort of the golden age and just are treating uh, hardcore films as as a particular kind of cinema. And I'm interested in uh, changing some of the vocabulary with which we talk about moving Im- image pornography, that some of it is cinema and therefore worth talking about and other is not uh, others are not. Uh, and to that end, I'm teaching a, a graduate seminar on feminism and pornography this semester. And I'm very excited uh, to have a couple of guests coming into my class. Uh, Annette Haven, uh, 70s uh, X-rated superstar, uh, is going to come out and answer students' questions about uh, her career and and her rejection of anti-porn feminism, which was really sort of dominant in the Bay Area when she got into the business. And then Tristan Terramino, the sex educator, author, and uh, porn director, is going to come out. So uh, I'm just watching tons of dirty movies and uh, and following the news uh, of which dumb white guys tend to dominate the cycle more days than not. Tristan Termino is fantastic. I'm so glad that you know her and are getting her for your class. She's extraordinary. She's a force of nature. And how about you, Kat? How's one of the hardest working people I know? First of all, I'm very sad that I can't take Kevin's class because I'm too far away. You have to video me in or something, Kevin, because it sounds really interesting. Um, we can work something so out. what are the haps so um i've just announced that i'm doing a book on am horror and it's going to be an edited collection of essays by all female scholars on hammer films and its connection to gothic literature and you know it won't be a blow by blow production history because by god we've had enough of those um it'll be more thematic so uh, me and Sam Deegan have just wrapped up some commentaries, which I'm not allowed to talk about, but mm-hmm. we did just did the Gorgon uh, for Indicator, which is out in October, I think, is part of their, they're doing a, a few of these Hammer Horror box sets. So Excellent. that's on the first one. And I was also filmed for the box set uh, talking about women in, ha- in Hammer, and they've got uh, quite a few female critics involved in that. And so also the other big thing, because, you know, I, I just decided I had too many spare hours in the day on top of mm-hmm. that was take on. Well, I've got two new podcasts coming up. One won't be until uh, autumn, which is Bloody Chamber, which is going to be on folk horror, fairy tales and fantasy and gothic film with the managing editor of Diabolique, uh, Becky Booth. But the big news is that me and Heather Drain, you've been saying for forever we were going to do some joint project and then, you know, you know, the universe collided at the right time and the offerings were made. So we're now embarked on this new podcast called House Bells, which we've just recorded the first two episodes, which were on Matt Radley Metzger, one on his 
erotic films and the second one gets a bit rude because it's more on his porn films so i can't wait for that because heather is absolutely just hysterical on those some of the things that she said and so knowledgeable as well you know who doesn't want to hear two women talk about porn it didn't start off that way actually the actual concept for the show was something completely different so that says a lot about us because it kind of just you know took on its own form but i love heather to bits so i'm really really exciting excited to be working with her oh i just did an episode for our mutual friend bill ackerman on his supporting characters shout out to bill he's also a hard-working person he just seems to spend all his time trying to unite people he's brilliant uh, so, so yeah, the Barbara Rubin of podcasting. He uh, he introduces uh, the Andy <laughs> Warhols to the Velvet Undergrounds of today. He does. He's brilliant, Bill. I like Bill, and he does so much as well to promote everyone, which is which is great. So yeah, I've done that. A new issue of Diabolique's due soon-ish. Uh, it's the autumn winter issue uh which is dedicated to witchcraft folk horror and fantasy we've got a piece from alexandra helen nichols on suspiria uh because she wrote the devil's advocate book we've got james gracie who did another book on the company of walls loads of stuff the devils i interviewed norman j warren it's just going to be crazy the so we're putting that together now that'll be coming soon so apart from that we've got some me and sam have done some really interesting commentaries as well but i i don't think they've been announced yet so i'm not sure i'm allowed to say blood spattered bride has been announced so by mondo macabro so i got to talk about the monk on that one because he's credited as an influence so well i'll be sure to link to what i can link to as well as over to kevin's blogs and other projects that you're involved with that i can link to over at the website projection-booth.com you can also find out more about today's episode and you'll find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show I really mean it. It uh, would really help out the show if you went over and rated and reviewed it. Or even if you get this through, I don't know, Stitcher, wherever, Google Play, uh, through your Zoom, whatever it is. Just, yeah, go ahead, rate, review, spread the word, go over to our Patreon. You can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.